This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. That was President Trump early Wednesday morning declaring victory in an election he now seems likely to lose. It was typical Trump making assertions that were plainly untrue, insisting that the counting of legally cast ballots was somehow fraudulent, and vowing to take his case to the Supreme Court without giving the slightest idea of what that case could possibly be. Was this all the usual Trump bluster, or was it a sign that he intends to make his final days in office even more disruptive and disorienting than his tumultuous presidency has already been? We'll talk to Yahoo News White House correspondent Hunter Walker about what Trump is up to, to election law expert Kim Whaley about the president's legal strategy, to the extent that there is one, and to Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell about how Joe Biden pulled out a crucial victory in her state and what the future holds for the Democrats in Congress who overall didn't fare nearly as well as they had hoped. All on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So there I was, uh, sometime after two in the morning, bleary-eyed, barely asleep, waiting to hear our president speak about this incredible election we've just had. I stay up and I hear Donald Trump declaring that he won the election. And that any further counting was fraud and he was going to take his case to the Supreme Court. And I was barely awake, but all I could think is, what in God's name is he talking about? And we've got the best guy to talk about it um, and explain. Hunter Walker, our White House correspondent and resident Trump watcher. Hunter, what? was the president talking about early this morning? <laughs> That's a pretty great question, Mike. Uh, and, and the answer is, you know, we don't really know because essentially as the president has made these escalating false claims of victory and these baseless challenges to the legitimacy of the democratic process, the, the logic is just, you know, collapsing in on, on it on itself. I mean, you know, in some states, he's demanding a recount. We're seeing that in Wisconsin. In others, he wants the counting to stop immediately because the idea of counting he claims is illegitimate. So, you know, accounting after election day. So the whole thing is pretty wild. I think boiled down to it, he is crowning himself the victor. Uh, he just tweeted, you know, we have claimed for electoral college purchases and uh, purposes uh, victory in a whole list of states that he didn't actually win. And, you know, we saw one of his advisors, Corey Lewandowski, literally go to Pennsylvania and give a press conference where he said, we're declaring Pennsylvania Trump country. So I think, you know, the president has 
declared his own reality and his own fiefdom. But, you know, Hunter, this strikes me as classic Trumpian bluster. He is acting not out of confidence, but out of extreme insecurity. I mean, look, this is the the kind of frivolous litigation phase of his campaign, which I think suggests that he senses that he's losing. I, I wonder whether when he came out last night, you know, a lot of Americans thought, well, he may be on the way uh, to defying the odds and to become president. But I wonder if they, his campaign, they were seeing where the numbers were going. They knew which votes uh, were still outstanding in which counties, in which states, and that he came out there to do that because he saw that he was actually in you know mortal peril of losing. I mean, I think you're you're right on the money. We've seen a couple indications, despite all this you know bluster, bravado, and the the false uh, declarations of a win. We have seen some signs of you know shaky confidence from the Trump campaign. As you pointed out, you don't walk out on election night and question the count if you're confident the count's going to favor you. Going into today, you know, he's escalated those questions. But also, I'm, I'm here at the White House right now. I was pooler all day. And the president did not speak to the press. He, he called a lid without any events, without taking any questions or making public remarks. I think that's another sign of sort of weakness here. And then also, you know, when I I referenced this uh, press conference that they had in Pennsylvania, which is, you know, one of the key uh, outstanding states here, and it really struck me, you know, we saw Corey Lewandowski, uh, former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, and former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, which in Trump world is really kind of the JV team. We did not see White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. We didn't see his campaign manager. We didn't see uh, Bill Stepien. We didn't see Kaylee McEnany, who's a campaign spokeswoman and the press secretary. It really seems to be a dwindling group who are going down this wild and dark road with the president. What is your sense of how hard Trump fights this? And when the numbers, you know, we get to the point where Joe Biden is declared the winner uh, and has 270 electoral votes or more. And, you know, they've run out their string on on court, you know, battles. And, you know, maybe they'll prevail in the courts. And, you know, they've got, you know, the Supreme Court, if it gets there, you know, I guess he might have, he's got better odds today than he did a few weeks ago before Amy Coney Barrett was on, on the court. But, but if he runs out all that string and, and doesn't prevail, what do you think he does? I mean, I know this, I'm asking you to, to speculate, but I, I guess it's kind of almost a thought exercise. I mean, does he concede? What does a Trump concession look like? Does he call Joe Biden to congratulate him? Is there any sense that, you know, okay, it's over, you know, now I have to think about my le- my historical legacy, or is he thinking about running again four years from now, and so he wants to just go down in a blaze of self-perceived glory? I mean, this is the key question right now. You know, we've never seen a conciliatory Donald Trump. I've tried to think about this a lot in the past couple of days. Have I ever seen Donald Trump admit defeat on something, say he was wrong about something, or apologize? And I don't think that kind of thing has ever happened. The closest so- he came was he, he you know, like a, like a hostage video was after the Hollywood Access tape, right? when he came out late at night and, you know, almost like someone had a gun to his head, read some statement, you know, whether it it wasn't an apology, but it was the closest I'd ever seen him come. You're totally right. I mean, that may be, you know, in this, you know, 
five-ish year odyssey we've all been on with the president, that may have been his most conciliatory moment. And that was about political survival, nothing else. Right. And, and so we have no idea what a Trump concession would look like. And right now we only have indications that, you know, I mean, his, his top advisors are literally annexing Pennsylvania, right? Like we, we, we have only indications that he doesn't want to concede at all. I can tell you that heading into Election Day, top Trump allies were telling me they were very conscious of the idea that this could end up in a legal fight and very cognizant of that advantage the president has in the courts. I mean, along with, you know, the three justices he installed on the Supreme Court, he got a lot of lower court judges in there. And, and you know, he really put uh, a conservative bench to the federal judiciary that I think they were hoping would pay off for them here. The problem is, uh, even though it's not a landslide, the contours of a very clear Biden victory are starting to emerge, particularly with, with fairly large margins in some of these key states. Even Scott Walker, the former Republican governor of Wisconsin, was saying on Twitter that you know a 20,000 vote lead, vote lead, which Biden had there at one point, was a really high bar to surmount in any kind of recount. So, you know, I think we, we're going to see more disputes from the president. It, it's unclear he can pull it off in the legal realm. And then that brings up the other possibility you raised. Could he simply run again? Obviously, there's been a lot of rumblings that he could launch a media property. I think, you know, we had some reporting back in 2016. He bought a domain for Trump TV. I think they seem to be in the mix for that as his, you know, alternate strategy in the event of a loss then. So I think, you know, whether he wants to be kind of on the perpetual campaign trail or kind of a conservative media titan, his posture right now works for that in a sense because he's just riling up his base and pulling them further into this alternate reality with him where you know they've they are wronged and everyone else is against them that being said you know i can see how this strategy might be self-serving for him for a number of perspectives but it's just incredibly incendiary and dangerous stuff i mean you know he is telling a large segment of the country that he's falsely telling a large segment of the country that their rights and their votes are being completely taken from them. And I do fear that we could see, you know, outbreaks of violence and anger uh, as a result of these tensions he's stirring up for his own needs. So he clearly hasn't gone to the Supreme Court because there's no conceivable way he can at the moment. But they are filing a lawsuit in Michigan, in state court in Michigan, and I gather they're also going to be filing a lawsuit in Pennsylvania. I mean, what is the just walk us through the legal strategy <laughs> at this point, if there is one. I mean, you know, Rudy Giuliani, who is on the president's legal team, was part of this press conference that they had in Pennsylvania. And he's done a wonderful job <laughs> on that legal team, hasn't yeah, his, he? His, his escapades <laughs> have included, you know... Um, yeah. Getting the president impeached. Getting the president uh, impeached. And, uh, getting the yeah. New York Post banned yeah. from Twitter and getting himself yeah. in the Borat movie in a compromising position. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's really on a streak, and that basically continued today at this press conference where, you know, he characterized uh, the elections, particularly in Philadelphia, which is a, obviously a heavily Democratic city, as quote-unquote illegitimate. And Rudy's reasons for this, you know, ran the gamut. He said, you know, potentially dead people vote in Philly. 
He said potentially Joe Biden himself could have cast 5,000 ballots. And he said people are bussed in from Camden. I mean, he was just sort of like throwing the gamut of allegations in there. And ones that clearly like he wasn't actually presenting any evidence that this had happened. And as he was running through this wild list, you know, Rudy said uh, among some of the specific cases you cited, he said, we're going to bring a national court case. And people were kind of pointing out it was totally unclear you know, what venue or what rationale he was talking about there. The bottom line is, you know, the one thing that we can tell for sure is they are clearly disputing the results. They're clearly trying to mount some kind of legal challenge. And both in terms of his inner circle, his own allies, and who stands with him to, to make this case, and in terms of the court, I think the key question is going to be who goes down the road with Trump. Is the Republican Party going to be willing to back him through this? Are his top campaign people going to do this? And would the Supreme Court be willing to take up some of these cases and hand him favorable decisions? Well, and we have seen some interesting and significant cleavage in you know, Republican, you know, between the conservative Republicans who have been supporters of, of Trump and Trump himself, uh, you know, Chris Christie, who on ABC last night distanced himself from what Trump said. Rick Santorum is Scott Walker. Uh, uh, Rick Santorum as well. Uh, Scott Walker. I think Tom Ridge today said it was un-American. So something something is going on there. And I guess the question is, you know, will he just be surrounded by dead enders at the end of all of this? Uh, unless, of course, he can find a way to pull a cat out of the bag. Yeah, I mean, the the election results, barring an incredible shock here, do seem to be shaping up. And what is also clear to me is that our democracy is essentially being stress tested, you know, live in this extraordinary way uh, on so many fronts. I mean, the media is having to figure out how to deal with the president making these extraordinary false claims. Um, you're seeing Twitter, as you pointed out earlier, you know, uh, censor some of his tweets because the claims are so false. The Republicans in Congress and the party they're going to be tested here, how far they're willing to go with him, the courts and our processes for this stuff. And, and also, of course, you know, vote counting mechanisms. I mean, one thing that is incredibly important in Michigan, uh, one of the you know, outstanding key states here, we're seeing groups of protesters who are Trump supporters attempt to literally disrupt vote counts in Detroit, a, a largely African-American city with a, a heavy Democratic base. They're banging on the windows. They're chanting, stop the count. You know, so there, there's a lot of tests to the Democratic process right now. All that said, Hunter, the guy did get as 67 million votes, 48% of the electorate. He did better than anybody, than most of us were expecting him to do. The Republicans held on to control of the Senate. They've gained seats in the House. It does raise a question if Trump exits the scene, at least as president, does Trumpism continue and is he the leader or does he pass the baton to somebody else? <laughs> I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, just as we've never seen Trump be conciliatory, I don't think he's really someone who likes to share a stage. Right. But the Republican Party is so wedded to him at this point. They did get good results with him in the past two elections. Some of the Republicans going to Congress this time include one woman who's a supporter of QAnon, this like wild pro-Trump conspiracy theory that there's a satanic cabal. Taylor Green um, in Georgia. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. people like this are part of what you might call a Trumpian wing of the party. And um, 
you know, I think the most telling example of how much the Republican Party has become, you know, a solely Trump-driven vehicle is the fact that, you know, when it came time for their convention um, this year, they didn't even bother presenting a platform. There was no policy platform. Yeah. The, the, the presentation was just about Trump and supporting Trump. Well, it is clear that this was not the repudiation of Trumpism that a lot of Democrats and, frankly, a lot of Republicans, you know, like Ben Ben Sass, for example, might have been, you know, predicting or even hoping for. Not the fumigation, as some have said that uh, uh, that they they wanted. And I think it does suggest that the Josh Hawleys and the Tom Cottons and the Ted Cruz's, the message they're going to take away from this is that Trumpism is alive and well, and that is their ticket to the White House. You're still, I think, going to see this being fought out within the Republican Party um, over the next uh, few years. But this certainly, whatever happens in this election, this certainly is, is going to give Trumpism some rocket fuel going forward. And I just want to give, you know, end on a sobering thought for our listeners. Uh, Mitch McConnell will remain Senate Majority Leader. Uh, Lindsey Graham will remain chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Ron Johnson will remain chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. So a lot of Trump's uh, wingmen will still be there on the scene making Joe Biden's life as miserable as they can. But uh, Hunter, thank Thanks again for your insights, and we will be back to you as the last days of the Trump presidency unfold. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Okay, we now have with us to uh, break down the uh, legal disputes that seem to be um, being stirred up by uh, the president of the United States to challenge various election results. Kim Whaley, our resident election law expert. Kim, what should we make of the Trump campaign's uh, legal challenges to the vote counts we are seeing? Well, I haven't read the complaints that they filed apparently in Michigan and Pennsylvania yet. I'm trying to get my uh, librarian to find them for me. But it sounds like the argument is that the campaign wants to send campaign watchers into the polling places as they're counting the ballot. So what, what I, when I hear that, I haven't read the causes of action to see if there's some legal basis for that. Um, but when I hear that, what, what I, I translate that into is we're, we need to find problems. So we want to go in there as they're counting ballots to find uh, abnormalities that what, then we can turn into a lawsuit. That's what in the context of discovery, for example, in a civil litigation would be called a fishing expedition. What I don't know is whether under those state laws, there's any legal basis to allow a campaign to physically, you know, lean over the shoulders of election officials as they're trying to count ballots. One thing that leapt out at me, Kim, is in Michigan, uh, they said they are filing this lawsuit in the court, in a state court of claims, not in federal court, which would be the way you would get to the Supreme Court, which is what the president was saying uh, early Wednesday morning. Any insight into why they would be going that route? Well, I mean, actually, state court decisions can go to the U.S. Supreme Court as well. I mean, Bush versus Gore started in the Florida courts. It went through the Florida Supreme Court. My guess is that 
It's you not know, the most it, direct route to the Supreme exactly, Court. Exactly. It is yeah, not yeah. the most direct route. It, you know, I think you're right that it would be difficult to leapfrog over the, old, the lower courts that way, whereas we've seen with the Trump administration and this Solicitor General not really having a problem asking the court, and this court, frankly, in uh, sort of unusual fashion, accepting expedited cases that they just think are especially important under the Trump administration. Regular people normally have to go through the, the, the slower litigation process. You file in the trial court, you appeal the next level court, and to your point, if you file in state court, there's going to then be a supreme state court, and then you'll go from the Supreme State Court to the United States Supreme Court. But state court judges have expertise that federal court judges do not. A lot, oftentimes they're elected. I'm not, I haven't checked to see what's happening in these states. But if uh, state court judges are elected, some lawyers believe they're more likely to make political decisions because they care about their jobs in ways that federal judges, by virtue of having a life tenure, are not supposed to care about being politically susceptible to losing their jobs. But are, are federal courts more reluctant uh, to weigh in on, on a state's uh, voting procedures, typically? I mean, obviously, it depends on who the judge is, but I had the impression that for the most part, uh, they don't like to get involved in, in state voting procedures. You know, that's true. There's something called the Purcell Principle, which is made up doctrine that says you hold off and don't do a whole lot, particularly close to an election. But, you know, this Supreme Court has had uh, multiple cases in this election that they've reached out and, and made uh, rulings on. I mean, the Wisconsin primary was was a pretty astonishing where the court actually intervened in that to not allow um, extensions of the primary time timing by virtue of the pandemic. So, so I, you know, I think if I were on Team Trump, I might be eager to put, put to put up something before this particular Supreme Court because it seems to think, notwithstanding being so conservative, that federalism can go out the window uh, under certain circumstances. When I say federalism, absolutely, it's a more conservative principle of letting the states do their job. And I frankly think Justice Scalia lost a lot of credibility in authoring that Bush versus Gore opinion that basically took it away from Florida. Let me ask you about uh, Bush versus Gore compared to what we're dealing with here, because I have the sense that there is a perception out there among a lot of Americans that, you know, elections can end up in the courts and the Supreme Court can just make the decision. But isn't there an important distinction here? Uh, in, in Bush versus Gore, we're talking about, about recounts, uh, whereas here we're talking about stopping stopping the count, not recounts. I mean, it could get to that because we know that they're challenging, uh, they're, they're asking for a recount in Wisconsin, but they're not doing that now. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you make an excellent point in that there's a lot of confusion around this coming from the president, frankly. And, you know, just to make it absolutely clear, there is no law anywhere in the United States that allows the president to stop ballots from being counted. There is no law in any state that says you just, you know, the, the, at some point the clock, the time runs out and you stop counting ballots. That does not exist. The Florida case, Bush versus Gore, involved a federal constitutional challenge that 
that boil down to essentially, if you count some ballots, but not others, that is you count the ones that have the hanging chads, that creates an equal protection, equal protection problem, right. a fairness problem. That does not translate into some broad federal rule that the Supreme Court gets to decide state elections. And in fact, Justice Scalia was very careful to say, this is a ticket for this train only. You cannot use this as precedent going forward. So it really boils down to is there an actual legal claim here? And that's what I'm saying. The notion that campaigns get to come in and watch poll workers count ballots, I'm not aware of that. Like what I use as an example in my law students, there's no claim for stink eye on the subway. If someone gives you stink eye, you can't go to court and get that resolved through a cause of action and a judge. And so my question here is where's your cause of action? Where's your legal right? to go to court and look over poll workers' shoulders. I don't so, know. So that, that's one wrong. of the claims, and that's, a, there, and, and that's, a, that's about transparency, at least uh, the way the Trump campaign would characterize it. There's one more claim, which has to do with this idea of ballot curing, that voters have been allowed to go in and, and, uh, and I guess change their vote if there's been some sort of a mistake or, or that sort of thing. Is that a more legitimate claim? Okay, again, it so again, it's going to depend on the state law. So, and the question of whether there's a constitutional question. So, Bush versus Gore, equal protection. Um, the Pennsylvania case where the court decided not to intervene on this notion of counting ballots that were mailed or postmarked prior to the third, but not received till after the third. The question there would be under the elections clause of the United States Constitution. Does, is that valid if the state legislature didn't change that rule? So in terms of this curing question, uh, the Trump campaign would have to find some federal constitutional hook. And I, I don't know, off the top of my head, not knowing the specifics of that, whether there would be one. I don't think the federal court would just jump in and say, we're going to decide Pennsylvania law. It would have to be something federally, as I tell my students. And that doesn't mean that you can't concoct something, but I don't think the court's going to reach out and do anything unless, one, there's, there's some good faith claim that there's a constitutional problem here, and two, unless it's going to actually change the outcome of the election. If, if you're just moving ships around, you know, chairs around on the Titanic, the court's going to say, listen, even if I give you what you want, you're not going to get any, you're not going to get, get the presidency, so we're going to stay out of it. So there's a lot of hurdles that need to be, be overcome to have it become a legal action. I think part of this is political and creating this frenzied panic, as you're indicating, that this is unfair, and the Supreme Court and this Amy Coney Barrett travesty, which I think it was, is going to come in and upend the election and take it away from the American people. And I think that's a win in part for the Trump campaign to just create this impression that American elections are rigged, that American elections are a mess, that they're unfair. What did you make of the president's comments uh, early Wednesday morning in which he said he'd won the election, which he clearly had not, that the counting should stop and he was going to be immediately going to the Supreme Court? Right. So, again, that's that's a complete you know, manufactured this, again, this Cinderella rule that somehow at the stroke of midnight on November 3rd, all of those ballots turned into pumpkins and they no longer are counted. There is no basis anywhere in the law for that. We did anticipate he would do this. Um, he doesn't respect the law. He doesn't respect norms. And, you know, there's this notion 
I'm going to fight for me. And by fighting for me, I'm fighting for you. That merging of sort of this mentality with the supporters that doesn't respect the, you know, the real truth around how the how elections work. Elections work, you count the ballots and you count the ballots under state law and state law varies. Some states do require that they be received on election day, which, I mean, I don't know if you wanted to talk about Judge Sullivan's hearing this morning with respect to the Postal Service, but that could get tricky as well. Explain that one. Explain the uh, Postal Service uh, issue. Yeah. So again, so some states, I mean, the framers left it up to the states. This is a mess. And Judge Sullivan said, listen, why can't we have run rule for everybody? We file our taxes by April 15th. Why is this so hard? And that could be fixed, but it's not going to be fixed so long as the Senate stays with Republicans. But essentially, in some states, it's a state law is the election officials have to literally have your ballot by the by a certain hour on on November 3rd. It could be three o'clock, it could be five o'clock, it could be eight o'clock, right? So basically there were some tips that were called into some of these hotlines that said there are ballots sitting in the US Postal Service and you know, posting pro- postal processing facilities. There was some record of 300,000 pieces of mail going into the facility, but not being recorded as going out of the facility. So the ACLU went to Judge Sullivan, federal court in DC and said, listen, you need to order Uh, somebody to go through and inspect these facilities and deliver this mail because under certain states laws, if it's not delivered to the actual uh, election officials by a certain time, those votes are discarded. He ordered that. The Postal Service said, too bad for you. I'm not complying with that court order. And today, Judge Sullivan said he wants DeJoy to, to testify. And I think he could hold somebody in contempt because just ignoring court orders doesn't work. On General what, grounds, on what like grounds did the Postal Service ignore his directive? We are in the midst of doing our job and we just can't do what you've asked us to do. I mean, I, I mean, my understanding was like, we just don't have the manpower, human power, we don't have the time. And of course, the problem is, if it turns out that there are ballots that then did not get delivered on time, he said by three o'clock, if, he, if they had done the sweep by three o'clock, everything would have been delivered on time. Then if that goes to the courts, the courts are going to say, a conservative court would say, well, federal law is federal law. It says it's got to be a receipt, you know, come rain, pandemic, storms, DeJoy, too bad for you, voter. And Justice Kavanaugh said this in his in his concurring opinion recently in the, the more recent Wisconsin case, it said, it's up to you. If you're so worried about your ballot getting there, you better get your, yourself to the ballot box and make sure it's done. And um, that's unfortunately how squishy the right to vote is under the American Constitution. Well, we've got to let you go, Ken, because yeah. we know you have another engagement. Just to your Thank point you. very quickly about ballots not turning into pumpkins at midnight, I will point out that there is a real intellectual inconsistency between in the uh, Trump campaign's arguments here. On the one hand, they got to keep counting the votes in Arizona and Nevada. On the other hand, they got to stop the vote in Pennsylvania and Michigan and so on and so forth. But as always, uh, we really appreciate your uh, insights uh, into all of the legal issues surrounding this. And we will have you back soon because we know there will be more to talk about on this subject. (laughs) This is going to continue for better or worse, I would say for worse. But it's always a pleasure to chat with you all. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Now to help us make sense of what has happened in Michigan and what could yet happen is our favorite Michigan member of Congress, 
Debbie Dingle. Debbie, welcome back to Skullduggery. It is great to be with the two of you, and I hope you've had more sleep than me. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. But Michigan has been declared for Biden uh, after a lot of anxious hours last night into the early morning. So last week, you were telling your Democratic colleagues that the race in Michigan was tightening, which didn't make you very popular (laughs) with the Biden folks. Why did you sense that it was tightening? What was going on that led you to give that warning? And um, how, in the end, was Biden able to pull it out? Well, I think there were two clear signals to me. I try to talk to my union workers when we're not in the age of COVID. I always tried to make sure that there was at least one union event on my schedule every weekend. So I would be in a union hall or at a union event, just so you hear what they're talking about, what's on their mind, what's their thinking. And I saw more of the members in the last couple of weeks as I was out and about carefully, masked and keeping my distance. And it was clear that not everybody who voted for Donald Trump last year was going to go for Joe Biden again. I uh, even had a moment about 10 days ago where one of the, we've now seen Trump caravans disrupted a canvas that we were doing. And I didn't, I wasn't afraid of them. I went out and, well, I was standing there when they came in and surrounded me, but I talked to him and I, I talked to him for 20 or 25 minutes, but uh, obviously a couple of them were auto workers who had some very strong feelings. I had some strong feelings back, but at the end we agreed to disagree and I bumped with the leader of the group. So I knew we were continuing to have a union problem. Talked about it with some of my union leaders. But it was also very clear to me that women who had stayed home four years ago, who somehow didn't connect with Hillary Clinton, some who voted for Donald Trump, were very disturbed by what was happening with COVID. Some, I know, have had to leave the workforce because the challenges of balancing work life, children, caregiving to parents, and a number of other things they couldn't do at all. Child care has become a real crisis in this country, and women are really the frontline workers in uh, many of the instances. Came back home, or should I say, voted for Joe Biden this time. And I think that when you analyze the vote, when we really do the raw data polling, you will see that Joe Biden won because the women that keep telling me they don't like being called suburban women, so I hate using that, but women that live around urban core areas that are working, and it's a challenge to have it all. I want to I want to continue get at what the, the Biden campaign did right, and, and it is worth pointing out that they, looks like they're two-thirds of the way toward rebuilding that, you know, vaunted uh, blue wall in the Rust Belt states. We'll see what happens in Pennsylvania. But I want to stay with Mike's question for one more beat here, which is, it seems to me that the Biden campaign and a lot of Democrats underestimated how popular Donald Trump remains, or that they didn't find ways to reach out to enough Trump voters to persuade them. Do Do you have a sense campaigning as as long as you have in Michigan with exactly the kinds of voters that that they needed, what they didn't do right, and what they will need to do going forward in terms of talking to those voters? 
Well, you know, I don't think there's anything normal about this election cycle, which is part of the problem. You had two candidates that approach campaigning very differently. One who's very aware that COVID is real, that it's, we've got community spread across the country, that you want to not have community spread. So you didn't have massive campaign rallies. You, we only did, I started doing door-to-door -door voter contacts, more physical voter contacts this summer. But the Biden campaign and the coordinated campaign really only started that three weeks, really three weeks out. But I can't criticize it because COVID is real and you didn't want to hurt people. You had a presidential candidate who, I mean, it's amazing to me that he had COVID three weeks ago and had the kind of vigorous schedule that he had at the end. And if you go in and track voter turnout compared to where he was on these rallies, there's a clear correlation. And he really did energize his base. So you can see those two differences. I also think that Joe Biden really does understand working men and women, but COVID didn't let him be Joe Biden. It didn't let him connect with union workers or go in a plant or go to a fire station or do any of the kinds of things that you normally do in a normal election. There's nothing normal about this year. Those union workers that were pushing back and telling you they were still supporting Donald Trump. What reasons were they giving? Well, one of the, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the uh, Trump supporters who I talked to last weekend, who was rather intense, said that President Obama promised to save his job and the focus was, panic was shut down shortly after President Obama became president and those jobs have been shipped, shipped overseas. I said to you all four years ago, I still say it, I don't believe it was an issue, a specific issue the way it was four years ago. But a lot of these union workers are worried about bad trade deals. Trade was really an issue four years ago, and Donald Trump talked about it. And he knew that there was fear and anxiety in these union, these union workers' hearts about how their jobs had been shipped overseas. And I do think that this election cycle People understand supply chain. When we saw PPE being made in China, that we didn't have masks and gowns to take care of our frontline workers, and suddenly people understood how much of the medicine that we are using in this country is produced in either China or India, it was raised as a major issue in people's minds about how we had to do something about it. I would actually say that COVID I think that this election was a COVID and economy election. And I would argue that those who cared about the economy should care about how the president handled COVID because the economy isn't doing well because COVID hasn't been handled well. But there are still some people that believe that Donald Trump and Republicans are doing a better job for him. I totally disagree, but we didn't really probably talk about that as much as we should have. Congresswoman, we saw a video today of, I don't know if they were poll workers or, or protesters, but who showed up in Detroit and were demanding to get inside where absentee ballots were being were being counted. It was uh, a, a bit of a scene. The police showed up. You know, I think most Americans uh, were shocked at some of the protests that took place uh, during the summer. 
you know, during the, the, the lockdown protests. How concerned are you about the potential for unrest, more protests, uh, people in the streets in the aftermath of, of this election, as the Trump campaign is also considering uh, lawsuits in Michigan and Pennsylvania and elsewhere? Not considering. They've announced they're, they are filing. They're filing them, yeah. yeah. Actually, gentlemen, they filed at four o'clock in Michigan. First of all, let's, everybody anticipated that election day was gonna have problems. And across the country, people were able to exercise the most fundamental right they have as part of a democracy and vote. And you didn't see a lot of disruptions. I, at Cobo Hall, I've talked to, I still call it Cobo Hall, TGI or whatever hall we call it now. There were Republican challengers inside and Democratic challengers because of COVID, the hall was at capacity. I think some may have come there with the specific desire to cause or do a, get some intensity or get some attention. But I think all of us have a responsibility if you're on the right or the left to try to cool temperatures, to stay calm, let the process work, to count every vote. I think that we have to denounce violence, um, whether it is agitated by people on the right or on the left. And I choose to believe that if all of us work together to try to cool temperatures down, stand up to some of the fear and hatred that's been dividing this country, that we will not have to fear what is going to happen in our streets. So this lawsuit is a little puzzling. First of all, they're filing it in something called the Court of Claims in Michigan. Why are they going that route? What are the grounds for the lawsuit, if any? And, you know, where does this one, where does this go from here? So, Michael, I'm going to tell you that I am so staying far away from this lawsuit. I am letting the lawyers who are on site handle it with, I'm not saying anything that anybody could use in a court of law. <laughs> so I wasn't okay. down there. I don't know why they're doing it. It's not an automatic recount as, you know, say you're seeing in Wisconsin, though the Republican governor said, so be it, but it's not going to change what the count was in Wisconsin either. I just think we have to make sure that everybody stays calm. I hope all of us want to see every vote that was cast counted. That's what people are working towards. And the claim here is that their poll watchers were not given access to the counting of the ballots. Is that a statutory requirement in Michigan? Is that the practice in Michigan? I'm going to be, again, I'm going to be really careful that the advice of lawyers not uh, giving any, I, but I really don't know. I mean, I wasn't yeah. there, you know, I've heard that there were poll watchers there. I mean, they have had a ton of poll watchers around the state ensuring that they were being credentialed, but I wasn't there. I can't tell you what the facts are. And I'm going to be very careful because I think there are some who are going to seek to get some political mischief out of all of this. And I'm not playing into the hands of anybody who's trying to have that happen by saying something stupid I shouldn't say. So I am smart enough at this to know <laughs> when to keep my mouth shut. Let's talk a little bit about another aspect of this election that has not gotten as much attention, which is what happened in the House. Now, you are uh, cruised uh, to victory uh, 
But uh, the Democrats were expected to gain anywhere from five to, you know, at the outer limits, maybe 20 seats. That didn't happen. They Why do you, they, they lost they, at least well, five, it looks like. Are they at least seven right now? Seven? Yeah. 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 So a, a significantly dimi- a diminished majority. Why do you think that happened? And is um, and, and then in terms of the larger picture, if Joe Biden ekes this out, he's not going to looks like he's almost certainly not going to have a Democratic Senate. He'll have a, a greatly diminished majority in, in, in the House. How is he going to govern? I think Joe Biden's going to do what he does best. And this is one of the reasons why I really do want him as president. He's going to pull people together that, you know, Mitch McConnell's not going to have this strong and wild majority either. It's going to be a close Senate. You're going to have a lot of Republican senators that are up for re-election in 2022. The American people, I mean, these senators have to be hearing what I'm hearing from people that are desperate for us to do something that are hurting from COVID. We have a lot of actions that need to happen. Joe Biden knows how to bring people of disparate backgrounds and parties together to solve problems. And when he says, I do believe that America is tired of being divided by fear and hatred. I do believe they're tired of partisan bickering. I mean, there's some that aren't, but I think there are a whole lot of people in the middle that are tired of it. And Joe Biden knows how to, that's one of the things he's done since I've known him. He brings people together and he tries to solve problems. I think that's going to be his strength, and he's going to work very hard to do that, and he's very good at one-on-one relationships. He knows that to get things done, people have to know you. They have to trust you. He's got many of those relationships. He doesn't have to build trust, and his word will be good, and he will not pit people against each other, and I think he'll tone down the vitriolicness and the rancor. But you've got you've got a progressive base in the House Democratic Caucus, AOC and the squad. You got a lot of angry, fired up people on the left. And among those who lost yesterday, Max Rose in New York lost. I mean, people of your ilk, you're diminished if you're the sort of moderate, let's work out compromise caucus. There's less of you now than there are of the AOCs of the world. Well, first of all, a lot of the seats that we lost were in Trump districts. So that was a reality. And that was one of the reasons that there were no surprises. But by the way, there's still a lot of vote counting going on out there. You know, people intellectually knew it was going to take a while to count votes, but when you get there, it's harder to accept. So I want to make that point. But, you know, I got to tell you, there's probably nobody, and I mean nobody, in the House of Representatives that supports Medicare for All stronger than I do. It is something my father-in-law introduced in the early 40s. And I think COVID has shined a a light on the fractures in our healthcare system, and we need to do something about it. But I also know that I can't get something done if I don't bring people together, if I don't try to build a coalition to accomplish what I want to do. And I also think that something's a more effective piece of legislation if you build a diverse coalition so that people feel that they're bought into it, especially when you're trying to bring about real change on policy across the country. So I'm just, I'm somebody that talks to everybody. And by the way, I'm not, I don't know everything. 
I, I will use a John Dingle phrase. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason, to listen to each other more. We should hear each other's different perspectives. It's what the Congress used to do a lot. It's something we all, whether you're in the Congress, in the media, you're part of a community, a church, school, wherever you are, let's listen and be open to each other a lot more than we've become. Well, let me ask you, what do you think if Joe Biden becomes president and, you know, you talk about his ability to bring people together, but in terms of a policy agenda, what kinds of things do you think he should be doing to try to get some governing momentum, to try to get some traction and show that he can bring people together, specific kind of policy issues? Well, I mean, I'm sort of, I have about 10 ideas right at the beginning. I mean, I think an infrastructure bill should be one of the very first things we do. We've got a lot of things that we need to fix, not just our roads and our bridges, but broadband as we're in this COVID moment when we see what kind of economic disparity there is even for our children, just simply because they don't have access to broadband or you look at the number of sewer systems and water systems that need to have their pipes replaced. We need to ultimately go to electric vehicles, but you're not gonna get the consumer to buy them until we build an electric vehicle infrastructure. So I think that an infrastructure bill, and it can create jobs, which you know we're, we should be trying to do. As we are trying to strengthen our economy, we should be doing an infrastructure bill. But when you all say what you can't do, Donald Trump has repealed or rolled back almost 150 environmental regulations. We, he can go in and fix some of those, the very first basic laws that were passed for environmental legislation in the 60s and the early 70s, NEPA, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, he's gutting cafe standards. I mean, the oil industry, the utility industry have asked him not to do mercury, methane. So those are things that you don't have to worry about an obstructionist Senate. Not that I'm calling them obstructionists, we're all gonna come together, but I think he'll be able to address some of those things too. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm hopeful that I'm going to get the, this is, I know I'm pipe dreaming, but if you don't dream, you're never going to get it. I want to get the environmentalists, the young kids that are involved, involved in Sunrise and the Green New Deal together with the labor unions and then maybe the industry and try to find some common ground so we can protect our environment, but make sure those auto workers know they're going to have a job in the future. You mentioned uh, the young kids. I want to ask you a bit of a sensitive question. President-elect Biden, if we can call him that uh, at this point, is 78. Speaker Pelosi is 80. Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, is 81. Chuck Schumer is 69. Does the Democratic Party need some fresh blood? I think that in order to be effective, we need to have all generations there. I well, you're, very, you're well represented in the older set. Uh, <laughs> uh, do, but you're seeing the younger, the next generation, get other posts inside the Democratic Caucus. We need to get them in. We got to listen to them. We got to help get them there. But I'm not somebody that also, you know, I don't, I don't think seasoning is a bad thing. I don't think, you know, when you're young and idealistic, and we need that passion, we need that idealism to keep us motivated, but sometimes a healthy dose of experience combined with that idealism can get actually accomplish your goal. So I don't 
judge people on age, though I think we need to be bringing more young people in. We need to find and make sure that there's a place for everybody, diversity, period, men, women, Hispanics, Blacks. You know, we need to do all of that. But I, I think you're going to see in the leadership, you've got Hakeem Jeffries. You've, we've got some very contested leadership races inside the Democratic Caucus. I don't know what's going to happen in the Senate. I'm not a senator. Don't what, want to be what, are the, what are those contested uh, uh, well, the, contests um, we're going to see in the, in the, in the House the Democrats? The assistant speaker spot has Tony Cardenas from California, Catherine Clark, and uh, David Cicilline running for that. Vice chair of the caucus has Pete Aguilar from California, Deb Holland, Robin Kelly. I'm forgetting one of the races because I'm brain dead at this point. Uh, there's another position that's for a member that's had under five terms. S- several of the freshmen are running for that spot. So, you know, people are, we got to bring them in. We got to make sure their voices are heard. And you got to make sure their voices are heard. You got to make sure they're not afraid to express their voice at the table, which, as you know, I'm never afraid to do. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I just to, you know, just one more beat on this. The re- one reason I asked the question is there's you know been some postmortems today about um, anger among Democrats, about the House Democrats, among the poor performance in the election and blame at the speaker and uh, and majority leader Hoyer. I think those discussions are going to happen, but I also don't know who's going to run or who's going to challenge them. So, um, is there a potential challenger? I don't, I don't know who that person would be, Michael, to be perfectly frank. And I'm going to tell you something. Nancy Pelosi is one tough lady. I don't know anybody who has, she, I I, I shouldn't say this, but I will boss of steel, but she also understands, you know, we've got to learn. We need to, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I am very focused on making sure that if it does look like Joe Biden's going to become president, we don't lose the House in two years, which is exactly what happened when President Obama became president. And and, and when Bill Clinton became president. And when Same Bill thing. Clinton became yeah. president. And, you know, decisions were made at that time about what bill should go first and what should go second. And there are many of us that think that some of those first bills were what contributed to the loss of the House of Guns were what I think contributed to the loss of the House after um, Bill Clinton's first two terms. You got to have somebody that is not afraid to say to the progressives, okay, you got to listen over here. You got to bring people together. But wait a second. It it was Obama who pushed health care in that first term, and that was your issue. issue. What? You're forgetting history. It was not, it was the environment. They had a choice to decide whether they should do health care first or do the environment first. And the House had a brutal vote on the environment that went nowhere, went nowhere in the Senate. And uh, many did not forget that vote. And meant you can talk to several members who lost who believe that that was it. Now, the Affordable Care Act was also controversial. It was, I'll never forget, we were one of the first people that had one of those famous town halls. But, um, and now the Affordable Care Act is... People are, it's an issue that people want to know how you, what you're going to do about pre-existing conditions. So times change too. Are you concerned at all uh, that in the House, putting aside the, the legislative agenda, that there's a kind of a messaging problem that because of 
progressive wing of the party because of the squad and uh, some of the rhetoric that it, it, it becomes too easy to sort of tar, you know, House Democrats, Democrats more generally as being too liberal, radical, too far to the left. And, and that is a problem beyond just those those members, but but for everyone in, in the caucus. You know, um, if you let people do that, there could be a problem, but you can't let that happen. You know who's really, I mean, everybody in the caucus kinds of laughs at us. Rashida Tlaib's one of my dearest friends. I mean, back home, they call us double trouble. You've never seen two women of different styles. Yeah, I, I gotta seen, say, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of surprised to hear that. Yeah. Um, you should have seen us at Amazon when we showed up unannounced. As, and Rashida describes me in my perfect pearls looking like a congresswoman. But, but, you know, people don't realize our districts are totally intertwined, totally. And we our steel mills, I mean, we had, during this COVID, we've tried to do so many things together. We balance each other out. I'll tell her to cool it. She, you wouldn't be, you'd be surprised at how many times she tells me to cool it. I was the one that when they called the police, when I was like, how dare you call the police? Why didn't you just, I mean, and she was like, I scared her. I, I mean, I think, You've got to, we had more common ground. If you want to try to paint the squad as this, I'm not going to let them be painted the way Donald Trump paints them. That's what he's trying to do. These are, you know, they're four different personalities. They have different, you know, I, I looked at uh, AOC, who's become a good friend, how she handled being called words that I've been called all my life and kept my mouth shut and did nothing about. Because by the way, if I had said anything when I was younger, I wouldn't have had my job. I would have suffered repercussions. And I found myself, I, I talked to her at the time and said, we've got your back. What do you want to do? And she went to the house floor with dignity and grace and talked about it. I wouldn't have had the courage to do that. You know, and times are changing. And it's good to see this next generation. But we talked a lot about it. I said to her, did I make a mistake? not standing up to it or making scenes, but it was a different time. You even found Ruth Ginsburg writing about that, like in the Lillian Ledbetter case. So I don't vote identical to them, but we have some healthy discussions and we listen to each other and we all learn from each other. Well, uh, we'd like to be flies on the wall at some of those discussions you're having with your uh, well, friends. Well, I mean, the members uh, of Rashid and I entertain. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Well, uh, Congresswoman, I want to thank you for joining us once again. Um, Michigan was right in the middle of this election, um, and uh, it may have been the, the decisive state, as it turns out, and uh, nobody was calling it more accurately than you were. So um, thanks again. Good to be with you all, and let's work on trying to bring people together. Not in a naive way. We're not going to all agree, but we can disagree agreeably. Agreed. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you.